Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 93, St. Paul I. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, today we're talking about the 93rd Pope, St. Paul I, and we have actually met him before. He was the brother of Stephen II, who was our Pope last week. Both of them were raised in the Lateran Palace, both were ordained deacons by Pope St. Gregory, and Paul served as the principal advisor and the envoy of Stephen II, as we heard in our last episode. In April of 757, when his brother fell ill, Paul stayed by his side and helped manage affairs. And when his brothers succumbed to his illness, there were two major candidates for the papacy. The first was the archdeacon of Rome, a man named Theophylact, and the second was Paul himself. Paul's supporters were the larger and the more vocal, and they included members of the Roman nobility who wanted to continue what they saw as pro-nobility policies of Stephen II. And so Paul was elected Pope Paul I and was consecrated on May 29, 757. Pope Paul I's pontificate was shaped by the same forces that shaped his brothers. There were four competing powers in Italy, as you remember from last time. First and most immediate were the Lombards, who were led by their king Desiderius. And they had been defeated twice and signed peace agreements twice, but were still aiming at recovering territory in Italy. They didn't really stick by their agreements. The second were the Byzantines, who had basically been driven out of Italy except for Sicily. And they wanted back in, especially the city of Ravenna, which had been Byzantine-controlled for a long, long time. But they were still in the throes of iconoclasm, that heresy regarding images of Christ, and their emperor, Constantine V, was staunchly iconoclastic. Third, there were the Franks and their king Pepin the Short. Great friends, as you remember from last week, of the Pope, and they were a rising power in Europe, but they were still a ways off from Rome, and they had to deal with their own problems in Germany. And finally, the rising power of Rome itself. The Pope was really starting to take the reins of the political power in central Italy. So with this as the background, upon his election, Paul immediately began to continue the process of solidifying the relationship between the papacy and the Frankish kingdom. He and the Roman people wrote letters of friendship to the Franks upon his election to the papacy, and he also served as the godfather of one of Pepin's sons, who was born shortly after his election. This strength in relationship was helpful because Paul continued to have to deal with the Lombards. The terms of the previous deals with the Lombards involved the Lombards returning several cities they had at one time or another taken from the jurisdiction of Rome. And thanks to pressure from the Pope and from Pepin, this was gradually accomplished. Also, thanks to Pepin's intervention, the Pope maintained control over the formerly Byzantine city of Ravenna, which had been conquered first by the Lombards and then by the Franks and then given to the Pope. And when the Byzantine exarch said he wanted it back, he was denied. So basically, Pepin helped maintain a balance of power of Italy, making sure that the Lombards were in check and that the Pope wasn't threatened. The Pope and the Frankish king also worked together to help strengthen the liturgy and the learning of the Frankish, Frankish church. They sent instructions to France on how to train priests, how to train singers, who were sent from Rome to teach them to chant the Psalms correctly, and the Pope sent up several monasteries in Rome for Frankish monks and pilgrims to visit and stay. So these monks would come to Rome, live and pray in these monasteries, and then they would go back to the Frankish areas and help teach and solidify this relationship with Rome. And in time, the Frankish court became the 
biggest promote, promoter of a particularly Roman view of the church. This time of good feelings with the Franks corresponded with hostility with the Byzantines. As you can imagine, they weren't happy that the Franks had given Ravenna to the Pope and not back to them. And they were still mired in the heresy of iconoclasm, which Pope Paul frequently condemned. In his letters to the Byzantines, Paul refused to call the Byzantine Empire the Roman Empire. The Byzantines felt like they were still the successors of the Roman Empire, and instead called them the Greeks. And he likewise called Pepin the defender of the Orthodox faith, which was a title that had been given to the Byzantine emperor. But he also didn't give up on the Byzantines. He sent several groups of ambassadors to Constantinople to ask them to give up iconoclasm. Towards the end of his life, St. Paul encountered a little resistance and even the threat of violence from among the Roman nobles. He and several papal officials had been consolidating political power in the papal bureaucracy, which apparently annoyed local nobles. One of these local nobles, a man named Toto, planned to assassinate the Pope and put one of his own family members on the papal throne. However, he was prevented by the officials in the Lateran, who forced him to swear an oath to uphold the normal papal election procedure. Now, despite this setback, Toto brought to Rome gangs of armed peasants to support his side. And during this time of turmoil, Pope St. Paul filled, fell ill and was sent to the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls, where it was a little bit cooler from the heat of the city, and he was able to recuperate. Now, when he got to St. Paul's outside the walls, he was cared for by a priest and a Benedictine monk named Stephen. That name's important. We'll come back to him in a little bit. And stayed there despite these roving bands of armed peasants. But unfortunately, even with the nicer climate of St. Paul's outside the walls and the care of Stephen, he did not recover. Pope St. Paul died on June 28, 767. Because of the armed gangs, it was impossible to bury St. Paul at St. Peter's Basilica right away. So he was kept in a small chapel for three months until things kind of calmed down. But for now, we're going to have to leave it at that and pick up this story with the successor of St. Paul I, that priest, Stephen, who will become Pope Stephen III, and who we'll talk about next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts. You can rate and review the podcast there, which helps other people find the show, or you could just tell a friend. They are really into history, and especially papal history. This is the podcast for them. Thank you and God bless you and we'll hear from you next time.